Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, my name is Gary Mansfield, and this is the Ministry of Arts podcast, where each week I'll be speaking to a different artist. Now let's begin by bagging these bongos. Hello, hello, and welcome to episode 187 of the Ministry of Arts podcast. I hope you're all doing fine. We've got a couple of new Patreon supporters, so hello to you. Without your support, we would not be able to produce this podcast. And if you like what you hear and you want to contribute to keeping it going, just pop over to the Ministry of Arts Instagram profile. You'll find a link tree drop down box that will direct you over to our Patreon page. And you can help support us from as little as £3 a month. It's just the price of a cup of coffee, right? And if not, that's fine. This content is absolutely free for everyone. Well, today I've got the absolute pleasure of introducing to you Jonathan Parsons. Well, if you've been listening for a while, you'll know my backstory when the Sensation exhibition was on at the Royal Academy. From prison, I wrote to every artist involved in that exhibition. Jonathan was one of them. And obviously, I kept all of the responses from those artists. And when I went to record in Jonathan's studio, I thought I'd take one of the responses of his with me. He smiled when I showed it to him, then walked over to a filing cabinet, ruffled about within its contents for a few moments, and pulled out the first letter that I wrote to him. Like me, he'd kept it for over 25 years. How cool is that? The work that Jonathan's produced for his up-and-coming show, The Black Drawings, in the Bunker Gallery on the Isle of Wight, are absolutely next level. Now, I won't go into too much detail about the work that Jonathan's putting on in this show, but I can say without hesitation that it's definitely a combination of extreme skill with a basic medium and and an almost obsessive attention to detail. So please, come and join me in the studio of Jonathan Parsons. And, uh, exactly, and uh, yeah, I got that from him, and it was like, really exciting for me and my mates in jail. And then that's what gave me the confidence yeah. to find other artists. How brilliant! It's wonderful. And I think what's amazing about that process is that artists are so open, aren't they? They're so kind of generous, and they want to they want to reach out to people and help people. And you know, I guess there's not many people who didn't write back to you. Right? No. Well, <laughs> with that in mind. I saw your postcard up there. Oh, yeah. And I've got one here that I went and found last night. From Just read the date on there if you don't mind. Well, At the very top. Yes. And what is it? It's 96, is it? Or 8? No, 98. So here we go. So I've got my filing system. And I've got the one I wrote to you. Art yeah. correspondence. Oh my God. Well, there you go, you've trumped me. 
That's the first one you sent me. That is a copy of that. Oh my I wrote God. it out so I remembered what I'd said to you. And then you replied very kindly. Brilliant. Isn't that amazing? I knew I'd kept them. Excellent. Because it was so important to me. It really, really sort of struck me. And I thought, this is... I think I sort of said, you know... I forgot I'd written on that post. <laughs> and when I saw it, when I came in... <laughs> and that's, that's an image that's used a lot for you, isn't it? Well, that nearly got in the newspaper, that flag, because that was banned from the Royal Academy. Right, it's in the catalogue, but it wasn't in the show. It's on a postcard, but it wasn't exhibited. Because oh. the Royal Academy bigwigs at the time, it was very conservative at the time, it's not like it is now, it's a bit more funky these yeah. days. They banned it, and they said, this is a royal building and we can't oh, do this. Bollocks. Right? <laughs> Norman Rosenthal, who was the curator of... And he's quite edgy as well, isn't he? He was literally hopping mad on preview night. He was jumping up and down saying, this is bollocks, this is, you know... The, the president of the RA in those days was going, yes, but the sovereign could close down. There was just, and it was really disappointing for me because if that had been in the show, it would have been more, you know, um, sort of uh, more noticed in a way because my work was very quiet and sort of subtly away in the same room as a massive Damien chopped up yeah. a cow or loads of tanks. There was this <clears throat> quiet little case with the map in it. Um, and that whole story was going to get written about, right? And then someone, about the day before, egged Myra. So they threw this egg at the Myra painting, egged and inked it, I think. And the egg exploded and went on to Kareth Wynne-Evans's beautiful mirror, yeah, which is mirrored yeah. on the surface, it was. So there's this bit of egg on it, and they couldn't get it off. They couldn't do anything about it. Um, so they went with the Myra egging story instead of the other black and white image story, which is a bit annoying. But there you go. And the... Image we're talking about is a Union Jack. Is that black, white, and grey, or is it a yes, blue? Black, white, and grey. Yeah. And what is the story behind the flag? So I, when I was at uni, I was kind of interested in sort of the idea of pop culture and sort of images and objects that people would be very familiar with. I'm always very interested in sort of subverting what you think you're seeing, or showing you something that you don't know what it is, then you realise it's familiar. Yeah. What I'm trying to do is reveal the nature of perception and how that we see what we want to see or we see what we're conditioned to see rather than it being a new thing, right? So I wanted to take a very familiar object and, you know, various artists and practices have sort of suggested to me that the flag was one of those things. It's a sort of logo that's accepted without any kind of question. Uh, but its meanings are really entrenched in society. So if you do, so, as soon as you do something like desecrating a flag, people get very fired up. But what I wanted to do was look at it as a visual picture. So to say, actually, we can experience these things as an image, not just as a sort of heavily coded, um, meaningful thing in society. So I just rendered it in a tonal version. So it's a, as if like taking a black and white photo of uh, a flag or seeing it on TV in black and white in those days I still had a black and white TV <laughs> yeah. or the, the, the contemporary version of that would be to desaturate it in a, in a smartphone or on Photoshop so it's a tonal black and white image of a flag but I got it made as an actual flag in black, white and grey cloth yes. in sections sewn together to create this kind of weird idea I mean the the, the the psychological phrase for it is cognitive dissonance, where you can't really understand what you're looking at. What is there is not quite what you're understanding yeah, is of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. So you see something different, and you think you see something. And what's amazing about that is it is black, white, and grey, but people see lots of colours in it. And even a reviewer of it said it was faded blue, a faded old... Well, I see it, there. I see it as, as blue, maybe because the sky behind... Yeah. sort of filtering and it's probably a bad photo <laughs> and a bad bit of printing but then that's inspired me to take to do the next piece which was in my first solo show at Richard Salmon in 1996 and that's a piece called Cuttlefish Cuttlefish is the origin of the brown sepia ink oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. that is used so it's brown so I did this thing in shades of brown very specific shades of brown I got the flag company to dye the cloth right made it in that and people just went oh yeah 
Hold on. And I said, what? You know, I had this, I had a small version made of it and it was hanging up high in my studio at the time. And a mate of mine who I worked with, this was before I, while I was still sort of, I, I did a lot of shift work in the printers to pay the bills and everything. He came over to meet for a pint and he just came to the studio and uh, he looked up and he went, hey. I said, hold on a minute, Brian. What do, what do you think that is, Brian? And he goes, well, sir, it's a union jack, isn't it? I said, yeah, but uh, what about it? And he said, what do you mean, what about it? I said, well, what colours are is it? Yeah. And he said, well, it's red, white, blue, isn't it? <laughs> and I said, okay. Mm. Got these swatches of cloth out, which is brown, brown, and brown. Really dark brown, very pale cream, and a mid-brown. Yeah. So it's a tonal version, but in sepia. So I said, what are these three bits of cloth, then? Well, they're brown, brown, brown. What are you going on about? <laughs> and I said, so what's that flag? And he looks at me and he goes, well, it's red, white, and blue. <laughs> Excellent. And I said, you sure? Right, you sure about that? He said, yeah. right, I've got my big step ladder. And I said, that's brown, and that's red, white, and blue. Yeah? Yeah. I climbed up the step ladder with these swatches of colour and put it up against this flag. And he looked at this thing and went, and you could sort of see the colour drain from his face, no pun intended. You could see the fear. Because in his brain, that... Coloured objects had just switched yeah. to brown. So he, his brain had assumed, was telling him, that's those colours, because that's what that object is, yeah. right? But then when he was forced to reevaluate that, when his brain said, had some new information, it was like, no, I'm going to actually change what you're perceiving to the other thing. And it was, it was a classic example of what I talk about as being the, sort of the, the conditioning and the prejudices that you have that literally um, colour what you see, that literally, um, and it's, it's the root of a lot of problems in society, that, that people have a bias against yeah. things based on visual appearance. You know? And advertisers take that theory and, and use it to the extremes, don't they? Yeah, so it's a kind of, that piece is a kind of token about, which says quite a lot about what I do in my practice anyway, I'm always trying to work out how perception works, what pictures are, what do they mean, how do they create that meaning, and how do we understand all of that? That's basically how it all comes together. Well, on, on, the, on the topic of flags, I, asked, I did ask if anyone had questions for, for you, right. and one of them was from a person called Gunner in Toronto, in Canada. And it said, you work with flags. Do you see them as symbols of identity or visual communications? And are there going to be any more? Good question. They're all of those things. Flags are very interesting. They come from heraldry, which is a very specific system of visual communication. Non-verbal communication. But there is also a verbal side to heraldry, which is a description in words of the visual item. And flags are a simplified version of heraldic shields and coats of arms and all of that. And uh, so what they are is very much visual communication devices. So signal flags at sea before there was radio communications, there was semaphore, there was signalling flags which gave particular phrases. You know, the Nelson command that uh, every man should do his best at Trafalgar, all that sort of stuff. So they are signals. That's how, why they've been designed. They're, they're easily identifiable from a distance, a small scale in the visual field. So uh, the emblem of a house or a family can be seen on the battlefield and understood. So they are visual signals, right? And therefore, because they come from heraldry, they are about identity and they're about identity of individuals and families. Yeah. So... The concept of a national flag is a very recent thing, right? Only a couple of hundred years old. And also, and that then sort of transfers the idea of personal identity onto national identity. So because of these traditions and because these symbols are so entrenched in culture, that then becomes a very, very powerful symbol of identity. And that's what interests me about them, right? Firstly... They're extremely powerful, but they're also very simple abstract images, yeah. flags are. 
not heraldry, that can be very complicated. <laughs> Coats of arms can be really complicated, but they're still symbols. They're very simple, but at the same time, they inspire incredible emotion and intense response in people. So a little bit of abstract graphics can punch someone, you know. So a friend of mine from Northern Ireland, I did a, a, a piece, a video piece that was a, on the after images. So I, I, I displayed on the screen a, um, uh, a negative version of red, white and blue, which is uh, cyan, uh, black and uh, <laughs> yellow. That's fine. You stare at it. And oh, it flips to a white screen, and you see it, red, white, and blue yeah. Union flag floating. It's in your retina. It's in your head. It's not out there in the world. And she couldn't look at this because she was so disturbed by the image of the Union Jack. She just couldn't handle it. Yeah. Because it was a symbol of imperial dominance in Northern Ireland. I've right? never really been a, a wave, a flag waver. Me neither. But when Scotland were having their referendum. And there was talk of if they come out of Britain, yeah, we would have to redesign our flag. Yeah, that really hurt me, mm. you know. But I thought, well, I don't want. Well, my in flag a way, to in a way, the black and white flag is um, is a kind of idea of this thing that is a historical moment. Yeah, because before the earlier flag, it didn't have the red diagonals; it was just white diagonals. The original unit okay. flag, so it's the. England flag slapped on, on top of the Scotland flag yeah. and then the little red bits were added in to symbolise something else so a bit later in the Union so I can't remember what um, oops that will annoy people but um, the point is that um, Northern Ireland wasn't it? I think it was Ireland was it? Because I don't think Welsh are represented no they're not no it must have been Northern Ireland um I should know this, shouldn't I? <laughs> Let's cut this bit out. Um, <laughs> but the point is that... Um, so they are seen as identity, but at the same time, they're seen... For me, they are an abstraction, and they're a really interesting token that's in widespread use without people really thinking much about it. And the tradition of the national flag is something that's recent, only been recently adopted, but people have adopted it all over the world. So every nation state in the world, except for Nepal, has a rectangular or square flag. What's Nepal's you try? It's a double swallowtail, yeah. Okay. With Buddhist symbols on it. Yeah. Um, sun and moon, I think. Um, and it's just become this international language that everyone recognises, right? It's amazing. Of all cultures, they've adopted this thing. And the other thing that's interesting, because of this heraldic tradition... Uh, the, the revolutionary flag is the French tricolour. Just this very abstract thing. Imagine that in the 18th century, how weird that was compared to all the, the, the national standards of the time, which were the personal flags of the kings and queens, yeah. and therefore hugely complex and heraldic, with lions and fleur-de-lis and all this kind of stuff on it. You suddenly get this tricolour, which is like, boom, the new republic. You know, This is the French idea of what statehood is. It's a you know, formal, it's abstract, it's, uh, it's clean, it's new, right? The upshot of that is that a lot of um, new republics around the world or, or countries that have come, become independent just looked to the tricolour and made tricolour flags. A lot yeah. of African countries have yeah. tricolour flags in the Pan-African colours, for example. And that sort of very ab- abstract thing has just become this amazing symbol and, uh, you know, it's everywhere. I think it's the most, most common... Design for a flag is a trickler these days. Did you not create, was it 99 flags yourself? Yeah, I designed this. This is a dream, quite a few more, I think. It's more like 209. Okay. <laughs> I don't know where I've got 99. <laughs> because, um, well, I might have written about that somewhere. But I have a few dream projects, and uh, one of them is this kind of, it's a thing called Possibles. And it's, uh, I've created these designs for just over 200 flags for countries that don't exist. <laughs> like, say, possible flags, you know. And so around 200, because there's around 200 um, nation states on the planet at any one time. It fluctuates by year. <clears throat> and I also did this other project called Dead Flags, which were all of the 
national flags that are no longer existing. Oh, nice, yeah, yeah. Those are two dream projects I've never made because, you know, getting big public artwork or large installation pieces made requires a lot of hustle from the artist. You know, you have to push it. So it's all ready to go and stuff, but um, no, I haven't realised that project. But in answer to that question, that yes, there are more to come when, when and if the opportunity arises, you know. Um, when you first wrote to me, I was showing this installation of these black and brown flags at Milch Gallery in London, which is no longer running, and um, that was 31 flags, and those were the configurations of all the signal and um, national flags of the world. There were sort of all the ways in which the rectangle was divided yeah. up to make those flags. So that was a kind of essay on abstraction, really. Yeah. And then just jumping back to uh, the conversation about sensations again. Yeah. The artwork you showed there with the dissected map. Yeah. Its title was... I've got it it was Carcass. Carcass, of course it was Carcass. 1994, that was me. And it was a massive... What was it? It must have been six feet, eight feet? So what happened was I got this... Uh, very big wall map, the biggest singular wall map I could find of all the roads of Britain. And I'd had this idea when I was a student back in 1991, maybe, to dissect uh, this map. I just don't know where this came from, but this idea of cutting out this map and then sort of displaying it in, the, in a way that a sort of natural history specimen or yeah. an anatomy specimen would be displayed. So the case of this thing was two metres tall, so sort of the size of a human being. Um, and I suspended this dissected map with south at the top, not upside down, because that's a convention, but south at the top. So for, if you think of Britain as a picture, upside down. Yeah. And so that takes away the familiarity of it, so you don't know what you're looking at. But actually it's something very, very familiar, that sort of shape. Um, and it's sort of connected with the flag because it's sort of like an identity of the country. That sort of map of Britain is so kind of iconic, yeah. isn't it? You know, it's been made into cartoons over the years. And what did you do with the land that you cut out? I probably kept it in a box somewhere. I, mean, I, I think in my archive somewhere, I've probably got all the little bits cut out because I wouldn't have just chucked them away. I'd have thought this might become another piece or something. That'd be a jigsaw you wouldn't want to approach, wouldn't it? Because <laughs> it's, uh, I, did a, I did three or three or four other versions of, of that, that road map, and then I've done lots of other map pieces since. And uh, it's, yeah, it's kind of weird, you know, it's, again, it's this sort of like, like a lot of my drawing and painting, it's very, very high level of craftsmanship, so there's a lot of careful work that um, really didn't... Uh, you know, required a lot of uh, concentration and hand-eye coordination and stuff to not make any mistakes and things. And then working out how to show it and all this stuff. So I showed it my first ever solo show in 1994, which is a friend of mine had this, uh, I don't know, this building in the middle of nowhere in Warwickshire, this old farm, and he converted this stable or this, I don't know, this building, outbuilding, into a gallery space. And he's a curator. And he invited lots of interesting people to do shows, like people like Catherine Yass and Jordan Baseman and stuff. Right. And they were all like, wow, that's amazing. So this programme of shows. <coughs> and he offered me my first solo show. And I made that piece for that show. And what was amazing about it was that I'd done a couple of little group shows um, at the time in London. My first group show was in 94. Um, and it was with a, a travelling curatorial group called Every Now and Then which were uh, two or three guys who uh, put on shows around in pop-up spaces in 90s London this is when there were no mega galleries yeah. there were only a few shop front galleries on Cork Street that was it no other contemporary art you know, and Tate Gallery which is now Tate Britain that was it so when the 90s art started bubbling up there was lots of pop-ups so they did that and so I invited them, so I'd done a show with the black and white flag at this guy, this dealer, Richard Salmon's uh, dealing space. He wasn't the gallery at that point. And um, that's where Saatchi bought the flag from, my first ever group show in London with them. So I invited them up to the rear window 
um, curatorial group, I invited them up to this solo show in the middle of rural Warwickshire, right? I think <laughs> the guy, Paul, who organised it, I think he got a minibus up from London. It's like what they do to Roach Court out in yeah. Salisbury. You meet this minibus outside Tate <laughs> Britain. It takes you out there for a day trip on the countryside. And all the collectors and stuff, they love that, you know, a little trip to the country and all that. Um, so they came up, these guys, these curators came up. And my ambition, my sole ambition at the time in 1994 was to show that map piece in London. And they said, oh, we're going to put this in our next show. And it was a show called The City of Dreadful Night. And it was in... <laughs> Uh, Brick Lane and it was in the bottling plant of the Truman Brewery which used to be Atlantis Art Supplies there Oh, okay. under the bridge that goes across the footbridge Um, but in the basement of that was the it's like a concrete car park but it was part of the bottling plant so it was this dark basement and it was in this show right you had to go down these concrete steps and all this can't remember how we got the work down there and I had to rig up some lights some spotlights on this piece so it's sitting in this dark space um, glowing away, and, every, and there were, you know, there's a video by Seal Floyer going on, and there's some really amazing artists in there. You can check it out on the every um, on the um, rear window website. They've got archives of all their exhibitions. Um, and uh, well, I it was in that show, so I was staying with some mates in the East End, and we watched the Turner Prize uh, being given out one night, and Charles Sarchi was. Uh, either making a speech or announcing the prize and I'd never seen him never seen his face before it was a bit of a mystery in those and had he bought the flag by the time <coughs> he bought the black and white flag from the first group show in London Richard Salmon and then there he was and I'd never met him this is, this is a done deal you know I, I'd never met the guy and uh, <clears throat> it just so happened I was invigilating the show the next day and I was sitting there behind this desk and in comes Charles Archie, classic black suit, white shirt, comes in. And he just, he walks straight up to that piece. He sort of chuckled to himself with a satisfied, in a satisfied way, as if to say, yeah, that's good. And he came straight over, he didn't look at anything else in the show. He came straight over to me and said, who's this Jonathan Parsons then? I was like, oh, uh, 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 that's me, <laughs> You know, he said, all oh, right, how much is this thing? And I, and I was just like, had this price list and sort of... Uh, I, did, I had no experience of doing deals or anything. I didn't have anything prepared, you know, anyway. And he said, well, that's too much, but we're going to have it. And then he just left. It's just bizarre. And then there was a kind of, um, in those days, letter writing. And uh, we agreed on a price and stuff. And he bought this thing. And then he commissioned a very large version of the black and white flag. And that was the one that was going to be in Sensation, but that was banned by the Royal Academy. And it's, in fact, the big one that he donated to the Arts Council collection and went into the British Art Show 5, 22 years ago, <laughs> 2000. And it's been, two, it's been probably the most exhibited of my works because, it's been, because oh. it's been the Arts Council. And then because of everything that happened, Richard Salmon said, oh, I'm starting a contemporary art gallery. I think you should be represented by me. That's <laughs> all right. <laughs> okay, if you insist. And he gave me my first solo London show in 1996. Brilliant. And, um, you know, yeah, then it started from there. So I sort of went from, so I did a BA from 89 to 92 at Goldsmiths. And uh, it sort of went from there into professional practice, really, with this kind of two-year lead-up of making your yeah. work. Because you've, you've got to stay active and make sure there's new things all the time and you, stuff's happening that people, because people, that you know, question is always you know what you're working on at the moment what's going on next you know you've got to be there and so I just did that and it was kind of like that was the was the sort of ethos from Goldsmiths at the time it was seen as the professional college at the time you know Um, you just you've got to be in the studio you've got to make your work you've got to you know you've got to defend it you've got to stand up for it you've got to justify it you've got to be you know hustling and stuff I don't think you can sort of Imagine the power that Charles Sarchi had in them days. I mean, he's powerful now, but yeah, at, at that moment he was just lapping up the art world. He was a he? career maker, so for for a lot and of breaker. Yes, indeed. So he destroyed people's careers by buying up all of their work. So he'd buy an entire show, then he'd dump it on the market later without ever showing it again. And for other artists, he would 
buy their show and then show them at the Boundary Road Slarchy Gallery yeah. and then buy more of their work and then do other shows with them and then really propelled them. So a lot of the, the sort of superstar 50-year-olds now, I'm 52 now, um, were really supported and promoted by him and some artists uh, who were sort of taken up by that, were, they never had a career as a nightmare. I sort of uh, slightly in between because I sort of rode the edge of this bubble for yeah. a little bit because weirdly, very weirdly, he only ever bought these two pieces, Carcass the Map and Achrome the Flag. And they both went into sensation, although the flag was removed by the RA. I'm not bitter about that. <laughs> Bastards. Um, and that was it. He never showed them anywhere else, but he put them in sensation. It was bizarre. Yeah. So that happened. And then I had my solo show in 96, just before sensation. He reserved everything the day before the preview. Wow. This sometimes happens, and it still happens these days, but you often get pre-sales before the preview of a show. And those are often reserves. And then the person comes in and has a private, private view, you know, on their own with the dealer. And if you're lucky, you sell things before. So with every show with Richard, to give him his due, you know, with every show, just before the preview, he'd, say, he'd go, say, come on, Jonathan, well, let's walk around the gallery. And he said, well, this one's sold, this one's reserved, this one's sold, that one. And he would do that every time. It was amazing. It was amazing. Totally mind-blowing. So Sarchi apparently reserved the entire show in 96. He came in, looked around and went, nah, didn't buy anything, wow. right? But then, 97, put those two pieces in sensation. So I was, he was obviously wavering about me, yeah. but he didn't sell my work off. He gave it to the Arts Council collection. No, no, he gave one thing to the Arts Council collection and then there was a, yeah, was a Christie's sale, which was deliberately to create the Saatchi bursaries that happened after that and the carcass, the map went into that. Wow. Went off into a private collection, never to be seen again. So when did you make the leap of wanting to become an artist? Well, that's very interesting because there's a, it's a bit of a story. Because when I was very little, when I was like, you know, three or four, I remember vividly doing drawings, complex drawings. So I remember one time, uh, we lived in this little 1970s new build. My dad was always obsessed by new builds. And we lived in this tiny little house. And there was this sloping grass garden up to the path and the road. And I remember lying on this bit of grass and I'd use one of my mum's magazines to lean on. Woman's Weekly, I think. <laughs> pink and blue title. And I remember very vividly, there was some, because there was new bills, there was always things going on. There was this JCB, what I would call a big digger, yeah. sitting outside. I remember really clearly doing a careful line drawing of this thing right? at age of about four or five. And I would love to see that drawing today, but obviously it's gone. But you never Sorry, know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wish. Um, but I just, you know, it's funny how you remember certain things. And I vividly yeah. remember that, right? And so I was told that when I was a kid, the te art teachers would always say, oh, you know, Jonathan's really good at drawing. Look at these... Look at this painting he's done. And my mum was saying, you know, when I was about six, there was this painting of crows on a on a wire, you know, on a yeah. telegraph wire. And the art teacher was going on to my mum, this is really good. And my mum was like, it's just the kid's painting. You know? <laughs> yeah. So there were these early signs, right? So I was always quite talented at drawing painting. And I always followed it through, you know. And I remember when I was, even before I was doing O-levels and stuff, I was very fortunate to then, you know, be able to go into education. And took our O-level and stuff. And I remember, you know, experimenting with oil paints and stuff. I had one tube of um, of ultramarine blue. And it was just the most amazing thing. You open it up and you smell the <laughs> linseed oil. And it was just like <laughs> magic. And the colour was so intense and incredible. So amazing. And uh, so I did O-level art. And a really, really good teacher. He's called Mike Hamer. And he taught me how to draw with a pencil correctly. And I don't know if you've ever seen these Stanley Spencer drawings. There's nudes of his wife, for example. And he studied at the Slade, I think, where they taught this thing called the hard pencil technique. So you have a very sharp, hard pencil, H or harder, and you do these very fine line drawings with it. And there was a way they taught life drawing there. Well, Mike, he taught me how to draw the pencil in that way. So the... 
about keeping the pencil sharp at all times, always completely sharp. And if the lightest line that you could create was by just using the weight of the pencil, yeah. not yeah. by pressing and drawing the pencil along without pressing down to create this very pale thing. And that skill has stayed with me and is what enables a drawing like that to be made out of pencil. Yeah. And um, uh, so he was very influential. And so at that time, I was really obsessed by science and everything. So I did two science A-levels and an art A-level. And I was really, really lucky to have a tutor in the A-level who really was fired up by my talent and my work and really encouraged me to the extent that when I did my A-level exam, you have 40 minutes to make your final painting, right? <laughs> I'd done all this prep work and I decided I was going to do a painting in the style of Hans Hoffmann, the great abstract expressionist. These rectangles and splodges and things in colours receding, and, you know. But I was going to do that in 40 minutes and I was going to do a totally abstract painting for my A-level and see if I could. Because everyone else was like doing compositions yeah, yeah. and little views and still lives and stuff. At that time, before I got to my A-levels, I was like, you know, the idea was that art was, you know, figurative representational painting and it was compositions and you just, what you would do is you'd invent a composition and make it and just, that, and that, that was what an artist was. Yeah. But then as I developed, I realized, you know, the whole world was totally different and saw Francis Bacon's paintings and all this kind of stuff and was interested in the difference between figuration and abstraction and what that was all about. And this teacher, Anne Weeks, she was called on my, on my A-level, she showed this, amazing simple drawing of a face by Henri Matisse and said why would an adult draw like this and she compared children's art to adults art and talked about intentionality and that, you know so I did this abstract painting for my A level and at that time I just didn't know what I wanted to do with my life and I was kind of I wasn't as good I wasn't good enough I didn't have the sort of mathematical scientific brain that was sharp enough to do science so I just don't know if I can cut out for this. And Anne, she said, well, there's an art school at Farnham. You should do the foundation course and see what you think, because you try everything out. So I knew, all right, then, kind of drifted into that. No plan. And then at the foundation course at Farnham in those days, there were some really amazing tutors, but there was also really amazing students. And some of those, some of my... Um, fellow students on that course at that time got on to do amazing things, right? So Paul, who gave me my first solo show, he was, I met him there, right? Oh, well, excellent. And uh, Joel, uh, who was there, he's now world-renowned art director and production designer in the movies and things like that. So it was an amazing space. There were incredible tutors, and it was old school, so there's some really eccentric people. Yeah. And actually, the photography tutor, she reminded me of Maggie Hamlin. She always had a fag on the go, and she was terrifying. And there's one way to do something, and you use this film for that, and you printed this thing. But we did it. We did photography, a black-and-white photography portrait project. And I researched and based my method on the Diane Arbus flash-in-the-face direct thing yeah, and yeah, printing. Yeah. And she showed us how to print them up so they really looked vivid, you know. So we did all this different type of stuff. It was mind-expanding. And they had a full-time model, life model, Tony, the hippie, who always smelled patchouli oil, and he would just <laughs> come in your little cubicle, right? He said, Tony, can you just pop over here and just get naked? And you could just do a drawing of him. And it was just the most bizarre and amazing atmosphere, right? And because of my fellow students, we were very, very tight together, and we did all sorts of projects together already. So there was this kind of idea that artists do things and got together and they So we would club together and hire a life model and a friend of ours had a, a sort of attic space, and there were like tw 12 of us clubbed together, got this woman for an evening, and we all did life drawing, stuff like that. Wow. Uh, it was really amazing. And I just didn't know what I was going to do. And that feeling of togetherness, that's a thing that never gets old, isn't it? It's sometimes only with other artists that you can make a connection that they they understand because they're practitioners themselves, yeah. because they're striving, because they're pushing, because they're hustling, you know, because they're totally in love with their subject and whatever it is, right? So you get this profound connection. And I still didn't know what I wanted to do. At the end of the foundation course, I thought, oh, I'm pretty good at painting and drawing. Yeah. You know, I think I like that the best out of everything. Did my first ever oil painting there. 
was this painter there at the time, a guy called Harry Dix, and you can probably find his work online. He was probably the first artist I met who I'd seen his work in a show somewhere. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he said to me, I think you should apply to Goldsmiths. So this is in 1989, when Goldsmiths, I mean, I think Michael Cremite had just left, and it was the year after Damien had left. But Damien was doing all of his curatorial shows and things. So went to Goldsmiths, came out of New Cross Station to be greeted by Basil Beatty, and he took us around and showed us everything. I said, this is amazing. So that, you know, it's so fantastic. Yeah. I've absolutely fell in love with the place and the people and everything. I just, South London, to me, we're, we're still there now. Uh, it's just, it's just a sort of, it's a kind of a place that is just so full of energy and resonance and sort of power and it's very special. Anyway, I applied to Goldsmiths. It was the most terrifying interview. They were, they were, the people, some of the people teaching there shouldn't really have been interacting with young people, you know. <laughs> And uh, some people were absolute be- beautiful yeah. people who I'm still friends with now and colleagues with now. And my personal tutors were incredible. Um, David Ward and Mark Wallinger. And, uh, you know, got into this place. And I suddenly kind of was surrounded by... The thing about Goldsmiths at that time was that the you know, permanent teaching staff were okay, but you also had visiting tutors who were practising artists, who were in the... Mu- Museums who are in the magazines or in the yeah. galleries in those days. And if you wanted, you could have a tutorial every day. Wow. And some of my mates had tutorials with a different person every day. We had people like Hans Ulrich Obrist come in Shit. when he'd just done his first ever show in the kitchen in his yeah. apartment. Yeah. Remember the, with Christian Boltansky yeah. and stuff. And he gave us a tutorial thing. It was just incredible. And obviously, my fellow students were totally incredible. So in the year below, was Jason Martin and Seal Floyer, people like that. Um, in in my year, I was just trying to think, well, Knut Asdam is a very well-known Norwegian artist now. He was he was a friend of mine. Um, and um, Sam Taylor-Wood was in the year above, and, you know, and she was, spoke amazingly about her life at that time when she was uh, sort of surviving on her own. She yeah. was amazing. So there's lots of these incredible people around and really inspirational tutors like Mark Wallinger and you know others who who were doing incredible stuff and inviting you to their shows and meeting up in the student union for a pint afterwards and all this stuff you know fantastic so it's about in year end of year one 89-90 I think I read this thing that Jasper Johns had said where he said when he was talking about his interest in art, he said, well, there was this moment where I decided to stop trying to be an artist and just be one. Oh, nice, yeah. And I thought, I'm going to be an artist. Yeah. So I was 20. Can you imagine the, imagine the arrogance of it? It's unbelievable. But um, I thought, I'm going to just be an artist. From now on, what I'm going to do is art. And it started off with this one drawing that I made. And draw, intense pencil drawing has been, you know, I've done, done it ever since. It's one drawing I made of this scrawly chalk mark that I found on a door in Deptford High Street. <laughs> I took detailed photos of this thing and I did a reverse drawing. So I coloured in the background with graphite and I left this kind of streak of paper, blank paper, that looked like a gestural chalk yeah, mark yeah. that was smudged. And that was in 1990. And I thought, that is, that's my first ever work of art that I've actually made. Brilliant. And it was catalogue number one, you know? And uh, from that, from then on, everything that I did, I strived to make it as what a, a dealer of mine in Los Angeles would say was a museum piece. I tried to strive to make it as good as the stuff that I would see on display. In Is that torturous, working like that? It's rigorous. And it's, it's, it's to do with how far you want to push what you're doing. And I just felt I want to push myself as far as I can in terms of what it means to be making a drawing today, yeah. you know. It's not tortuous. It's very hard. It's hard work. So everything that I make is at the very limit of my capability of what I can actually achieve yeah. um, in terms of craft skill. And it's very hard. And you need a lot of... For drawing and painting, you need blocks of time. You need to be focused... You need a lot of mental energy, and it's very physical. 
especially in this space where I've got a hard concrete floor, standing up all day, and when I'm working, I work for 10 hours straight without... I stop for the time it takes for me to eat my sandwich, and then I just carry on. I'm on my feet all day, you know, so I'm walking up and down. So it's very physical. So yeah, in, the, in that way, it's very hard, but the results are so kind of satisfying in terms of self-development that... Um, I'm not a tortured soul. No. I mean, I'm tortured in other ways. Not what in the you art. Saying, <laughs> yeah. What you were saying about um, creating that reverse chalk mark. I know you used chalk mark mm. again in, in, in other work. Yeah. But I have problems with the freedom of a mark, doing stuff just on the whim. Um, I, I try to get so much meaning and layers of meaning in my work. And when I see someone creating an artwork just just off the cuff, I've got so much admiration for them because I can't do that. I know it's possible, and I know I can do it, but I have to spend hours to try and make it look as though it took minutes, you know? Ah, but yes. The thing is, spontaneity takes a lot of work, you know? I admire it so much. Like the skips. I know that you come down to sort of skip. Yeah. I spent three days on my skip. During that three days, on one day, Dion Kitson turned up with a carload of footballs, put them in the skip, and it was really powerful. That took him two or three hours. Mm. The following day, Hayden Kays turned up, made uh, what looked like a body wrapped in bin bags, yes. and just threw it in the skip. Or he didn't, he didn't throw it in the skip. He deposited he it there. He placed it in the skip, <laughs> and it was so powerful. Yeah, and was, I was yeah. still working on mine in the middle trying to make it as powerful as these either side that took them moments to do. But you know, those moments, many, many years of toil have led up to those, or many hours of very, very hard thinking. Those artists who work in a gestural, spontaneous way, that is one way of being an artist, and it's got the same value as another way of being an artist. But my experience of goldsmiths and the sort of idea of was when critical thinking was coming in and sort of real sort of theoretical analysis. There was this whole critique of originality that was in the air. Artists like Sherry Levine, you know, uh, Barbara Kruger and, and people like that who were critiquing this notion that anything was original, that everything was really quotes. Yeah. And allied to that was the hangover of posts uh, of Neo-Dada, which, which uh, through Rauschenberg and Johns was critical of the gesture. So Rauschenberg in particular was very critical of the um, abstract expressionists, you know, with his erased de Kooning drawing and saying things like, well, yeah. the problem with the abstract expressionists is they let their brush strokes show. <laughs> yeah. You know, so there's this kind of idea of the tortured artist that they thought was a myth, that was a kind of image presented as a yeah. bit of um, marketing, commercial sort of uh, idea. And then there are kind of artists in the middle where someone like Francis Bacon, who I mentioned before, who, whose work is actually, when you look at his marks, they're not the, the marks of a sort of ferocious animal lashing out out of control. They're actually really controlled. They're mm. highly technical. He would say they're not, but they are. You can see them. The evidence is there, right? And so at the one end of the spectrum, you've got Tracy Emin, who is pouring her soul out onto the canvas and is going crazy with paint. She said it herself, going crazy with paint just going everything around and someone else who is co- completely conceptualising their work and sort of creating it as a as a thing before they've even started the process yeah, of fabrication yeah. or crafting or whatever it might be you know so I just kind of I'm at this point where I'm in this kind of critique of, of gesture but at the same time I totally love it so my current work which is these uh, black drawings of graffiti tags and other kind of marks and things from the street they are saying that this is not a gestural, this is not a liquid medium uh, or, or image, but at the same time they're celebrating the things as things of beauty, you know. So in a way I kind of, yes, envy the graffitist's ability to just make a beautiful gesture. Because they're not worried about it, they're not worried about art, they're not worried about their critique of originality, they're just doing their thing. You know, and they're, to me they're the best gestural artists. Yeah, oh, I agree. Which work do you think that you've created has got the strongest emotional connection? Wow. 
So because I work in a sort of neo-conceptual way, which really means I just think about ideas for work and then make it, yeah. it's been described as neo-conceptual. It's not conceptual in the art historical sense of the idea being more important, because for me, the making of the material is really important. Mm. Because I work in that way, I'm sort of emotionally detached from the work in a sense. It's sort of like a kind of scientific laboratory yeah. rather than an emotional splurge. So I guess it's the intensity of the hours going into the work that is the emotional part. Oh, I understand. So I think if I didn't work in this way, if I didn't spend thousands and thousands of hours drawing and painting, say... I'd probably be a complete nutter, even more so than I am. <laughs> I probably would have had some kind of mental health episode and a breakdown of some kind, yeah. right? So I, I might have attachments to work that is an emotional thing or a sentimental thing. I can't think of one right now. Um, well, has there been any that have started off as one thing and during the process of creating it, you've sort of learned stuff from it and it's turned out to be something quite different to your intention. Oh yeah, you're, I mean, you always learn. You're always learning. Art is, is a continual process of self-development right yeah. up until the very last day of your life. So you always learn new stuff. You always come across new things. And when, because I'm trying to push media all the time, when I'm sort of struggling with the technicalities of oil painting, and I like to use quite sort of traditional artist materials like pencil on paper or oil on linen or whatever. Of course, there are, there are these moments where working in this conceptualised way, you're trying to realise an idea and it just goes totally wrong. It's a total disaster. So some things have been thrown away immediately or scraped off or sanded back. And some things I've kept because I thought, well, there's something in that. Yeah. And it may go on to be something. And then I've done the thing that I thought it would need it. And it's even worse. <laughs> so you learn in that way. And it will show itself one day. Only the stuff that is that goes out into the world is stuff that I deem to have sort of got to that level that I'm happy with. If there was you and five other artists past and present, Jonathan, what would your ideal group show be? Five. I think it would be self-indulgent, this. It's a nice <laughs> self-indulgent question. Because you get to sort of choose the amazing artists and the works and whatever, maybe. You'd even be able to sort of co-curate, perhaps. So I would choose the artists who've had an effect on me in some way, who've been really important in my development. And so in terms of ideas and concepts and sort of attitude to things and the attitude to picture-making particularly, I choose Jasper Johns, who I mentioned before, because he has this way of taking the configuration of an image and mapping it. So the most clear examples of that are his tracings of other yeah. images. And in a way, he's sort of saying all pictures are the same, all things in the world are the same if you treat them in this way. And he's early work is sort of showing you what you already know but actually then treating them and making something that's not a picture into a picture so that's been a massive thing for me yeah anyway him um the only artist who directly inspired me in terms of technique is simon link who's just had a show at darren fluke in london um and he does these incredible renderings of art forum pages of adverts for artists. And they're just, the way they're made, his attitude and approach to um, the crafting of a surface made out of oil paint just blew me away from the first time I saw his work at the Listen Gallery years ago. And he also was a visiting tutor at Goldsmiths. So I guess him. They're quite similar in a way in terms of concept, those two. But then I want someone who's a little bit more open and more kind of sort of playful, but also dead serious. So I think one of my big heroes is Mary Hailman, American painter. She had a show at the Whitechapel uh, a few years ago. So the show, which is beautiful to see that in London. Really kind of amazing. 
making paintings around the same time as minimalism, of course, because she's a woman, she's been over, overlooked yeah. for years, but fortunately she's now sort of national treasure. She's got a really beautiful way of talking about her work and a really incredible way of making painting. The way she makes a surface in paint is kind of like an object, a physical object, as much as it is an image. And I just, and the, her sense of colour is really incredible. So I think the, the sort of, the joyful, playful, but absolutely rigorous work, Mary Helen, would be amazing. I think it would be good to um, bring in the sort of installation art and the conceptualised art of that period of the critique of originality I was talking to you about from the 80s, 70s and 80s. So I think another Mary would be good. The magnificent Mary Kelly would be an amazing person because she sort of takes on the concept of a woman in society and the roles and domesticity, but also the beautiful way you can marry up archive, text, which I love text art, image, um, artefact, and museum display, and bring those all together. And it only makes sense when it's installed. It's an installation piece. And for me, that's the definition of an installation. It's something that cannot exist until it's installed. Yeah. So I think her very powerful, there's various amazing insta installation pieces. Uh, and she's still making incredible work now. So yeah, Mary Kelly, I think it would be uh, another great uh, person to have. And then I think, you know, back to drawing and painting. But there's also a little bit of installation via the medium of wall painting. I think I'd have to choose probably one of the greatest painters alive still she's still with us <clears throat> and probably one of the greatest British painters ever and that's Bridget Riley you know she's just such an incredible unique figure such a brilliant writer like like Mary Kelly as well and Mary Hamlet you know they're all really brilliant in writing and talking about their work such a thinker um, Bridget Riley such a deep thinker and such a, a Again, this time it's work that is about the nature of visual perception. It's about what your brain does when it's confronted with colours that are next to each other. And she's she she's the great sort of perceptual experimenter with with um, painting. Uh, and those effects are real. You know, you see those effects when you're in front of her work. It's, they're totally astonishing. I had the amazing fortune. Um, 2015 to sit next to her at lunch. Oh wow! Because I was co-curating an exhibition at Turner Contemporary in Margate with my old personal tutor from Goldsmiths, David Ward. We created this show that was called Seeing Round Corners, and it was about the circular and the cyclical and the spherical in art across time and culture. And we had a couple of Bridget's paintings, which are the yellow rings of different slightly different yellows interlocking in this kind of grid that's not obvious you can't really work it out and she's done wall paintings based on that, that kind of um, layout we had two of those paintings and for the fifth anniversary I think it was of Turner Contemporary there was a sort of lunch that they did there and uh, she was there and we were assigned the same table as her and David knew her a little bit <clears throat> And so he very kindly offered his seat so I could sit next to her. Wow. And had just the most amazing conversation about literature and art. She was just amazing. They say don't meet your heroes, but she was, she, you know, was the perfect sort of um, uh, lie that proves the rule, you know, because she was so charming and amazing. So, yeah, Bridget. Bridget perfect. Yeah. I mean, if you wasn't an artist, Jonathan, what do you think you'd like to be? That is a tough one. If I wasn't an artist, I'd be a mental case, that's for sure. <laughs> I would not be healthy in the mind, you know. I mean, as I said, I started out with this real passion for science, and uh, but I didn't, it was just too difficult. I found it too difficult. And I've heard since from other people that chemistry is a particularly difficult one. But I love communication, and I love... Um, one of my skills is assimilating information 
and being able to digest it and analyze it. So what I've found, I've been an academic teacher in art since about 2005. And I've loved that, absolutely love working with artists and helping them develop and um, working with people who are just at the beginning and developing and stuff as well as people who are later on in research and things like that. So I'm, I'm, you know, I consider myself to be quite a good teacher. So maybe something like that. I probably would be an academic of some kind because yeah. I am an academic now as well as a, as an artist. But um, yeah, it'd be, it'd be in research somewhere, somehow maybe. And what we've got coming up. So the next thing is um, the big thing that I've got coming up is my. PhD Viva, well, which is happening on the 8th of June. So next week, I'm culminating five and a half years of study on my PhD. Nice. But the next exhibition I've got coming up is a sort of breather from that. <laughs> and it's at the end of the summer um, in a really amazing place, which is called the Bunker Gallery on the Isle of Wight, on the southern tip of the Isle of Wight. It's actually the most amazing bit of private... Uh, it's a private home, the most amazing bit of architecture. And it's an old World War II radar bunker, this concrete bunker with a blast wall that protects it. It's joined to this private home that's a new build by my friend uh, Lincoln Mars, an architect, and his um, wife Lisa Traxler, who's an artist. And they've invited me to do a show there. And so what I'm doing is a group of these black graphite pencil on paper drawings of these kind of gestural images. And these images look gestural, they're very liquid, but they're done with the sort of Love it. you know, driest material, yeah. graphite on paper, and with, with no trace of my gesture at all, in, uh, as we discussed, you know. And um, so I'm showing a collection of these black drawings, and I've been making them as a sort of side project for more than 10 years. So they take me quite a while. They've been, I've been working on them since about 2009. So we're going to show about six or, I don't know, seven or eight of these uh, drawings in this space as a sort of just a really nice thing. I mean, half of them are done and framed already. And as a, as a sort of total antidote to formal academic research it's just the core of my practice which is drawing in the studio you know drawing and painting in the studio so, and where can anyone see your work be it social media or website I've got an Instagram account which is uh, artist JP which is artist J-A-Y-P-E-E and um, there's links on that to my website the website is an old school um it's sort of an archive for me, really. All the images on there are really low res, but it's got information about every single project I've ever yeah. done, and it's sort of an archive for me and for my daughter, really, so we know where everything is and what it's all about. So those two places. Um, I do other social media, but those are the art ones. And lastly, I know I've done this already. We met last year, at the latter end of last year, Yeah. Uh, when you popped down to an exhibition I was in, but seeing these letters opposite, and I, I know everyone I've mentioned this to has said it's not needed, but just thank you for for replying to, to that letter. Because I do get a bit emotional when I think about it or talk about it, because the fact that you guys just replied to a letter from a prisoner changed my life. It, it just absolutely changed it. And I know when we spoke last time, I got a bit emotional when I saw you. Well, I was emotional you know. when I saw you, you know, and you are very, very welcome because, um, as I said to you in our preamble, you know, artists are very open. They, they want to share things. They, they know about the struggles that people have. And, you know, I'm not surprised that people responded to you in the way that they did because, you know, actually, yeah, you don't know what's going to, help someone you don't know what's going to change their life you don't know what's, what's going to turn them yeah. on a different path you know and actually what you're doing now and what you've been doing and the way you've done is totally inspirational oh, thank you I think it's fantastic and uh, you're so so welcome you know it's yeah. much appreciated and I can I can't repay it and as you say it's every artist I've spoke to have said I've, I've just replied but yeah but you are so but that. you are repaying it by doing what you're doing as I said being a, 
an artist's practice is an ongoing developmental thing. And the fact that you're doing that is an amazing outcome from a very simple thing it was yeah. for me to do, which was reply to you. you know. Beautiful. Well, thank you, Eden White. You're welcome. Well, hope you enjoyed that episode of the Ministry of Arts podcast. So we wasn't dictated to by advertisers, we decided from the offset to go ad-free, which means, obviously, we had to self-fund. So we set up the Ministry of Arts Patreon page. And without that support, we would not be able to produce this podcast. So if you like what you hear and you're able to support the podcast, just go over to the Ministry of Arts Instagram profile. You'll find a Linktree drop-down box, which will direct you straight to our Patreon page. And for the price of a cup of coffee, you can help keep us growing week by week. But if you're not able to do that, that's fine because this content is free for everyone. But leaving a review on whichever platform you listen to your podcast, that really does help us get noticed and anyone else looking for an art podcast. Or even giving us a positive shout out on your social media. Everything is appreciated. But either way, thanks for listening. And until next week, Zada. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusion Supply. See site for details. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.